Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. We have a very special show in store today. We're only talking about the Supreme Court as we kick off a new term. We're going to dig in with a guest who knows the court inside and out. We're going to spend our whole episode today with the former acting solicitor general and current chair of Jenner and Block's appellate and Supreme Court practice, Ian Gershengorn. He's going to come on the show and tell us all about the cases we should be watching in what is going to prove to be an action-packed term for the court. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, I'm so excited was, to talk I was about say, the Supreme I, Court. I detect a uh, an extra lilt in your voice. I know this is like one of your favorite things to talk it about. It is. It's definitely my favorite topic. Um, I think anybody that goes to law school just nerds sure. out over the high court. I'm excited to talk about it, but not. Re- I'm not going to be here to cover it because um, I have quit Law 360, <laughs> and I'm going to be one of those people who excitedly runs out with decisions from the court. I'm very quick. Um, I've got good hands. Um, but so I think you, that's. Will you read things correctly and like tell the anchors on air? Oh, no, what to I'm say. illiterate. I'm illiterate. You, you make um, a joke about that, but people have messed up like big decisions. I can't believe he's gone this far in, uh, in life. Yeah, it's he's a journalist be, for crying out loud. Tell me yeah. an illiterate reporter. I, learned, I, le- I just learned a lot of symbols and, and I go from there. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot of like, it's a lot of sort of memorization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to get it wrong, um, you can't start this new job during this term because <sighs> our guest is going to talk about really exciting cases. It's going to be kind of a wild ride this term. It's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. So let's get right to it. Today's guest was an acting solicitor general at the end of the Obama administration, and he's now the head of Jenner and Block's appellate and Supreme Court practice. Joining us to break down the upcoming Supreme Court term is Ian Gershengorn. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you about this new term, um, in part because you did a great video that Law360 has up back in June at the end of the last term, and you called that term sort of the calm before the storm. And that makes me think that this October term is actually going to be the storm. So I wanted to get your thoughts on why you're expecting that change and and what you think you're going to see out of this starting term. Well, the real reason I think it is, it's in part because of the subject matter of the cases and in part because who's deciding that cases. And by that, I mean that there are going to be nine justices. The court will be back at full strength, as everybody knows. And I think operating with eight justices has really affected the way the court approached its job in the time since Justice Scalia passed away in, in February 2016. And it did that, I think, in two real ways. First, the court was really, really working hard to avoid a 4-4 decision. Mm-hmm. Um, the court wanted, I think, to project that it was the branch of government that was working and that it was not going to deadlock um, if it could all avoid it. And what's really interesting is that the justices have been pretty candid about that. Um, Justice Alito and Justice Kagan have said publicly that they were were eager to compromise and that they they were very conscious of that fact as they were deciding cases. And then, of course, the other thing is that parties were holding off on bringing certain issues to the court, I think, until they could figure out who the justices were going to be. Was Merrick Garland going to be confirmed, for example, or who was President Trump going to nominate? And so um, a number of parties, I think, have held off. So in the wake of Justice Scalia's passing, for example, there were reports of of high-profile settlements in the class action area of cases Mm. that were pending at the court. And I think that reflected that people were sort of waiting to see what the new court would be like. And now that we know, I think think we're going to see a return to business as usual and another high-profile term. Yeah. So a return to business as usual in this context means a lot of fireworks. Um, 
I wanted to run down, me and the guys run down a few cases with you that we think are going to be the ones everyone is following and that people should get their, their arms wrapped around right now. Um, sure. The listeners of the podcast know that I always want to talk about immigration first. So let's start there with the travel ban case that's had some recent action about a new set of restrictions on immigrant travel that might actually throw a monkey wrench in this case. Can you tell us what's going on, Ian? Sure. Uh, you know, this case has really become a bit of a moving target. So if you remember, there was a travel ban uh, back in March, and that did basically three things. First, it suspended for 90 days the entry of aliens from six countries, Iran, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. And second, it suspended for 120 days the admission of most new refugees. And third, it capped the number of refugees at uh, 50,000 um, down from 110,000, which had been sort of budgeted. So the purpose of the suspension was to allow the administration to assess the, uh, the security risks from allowing refugees and immigrants in from these countries. And the first of the bans, the 90-day ban, actually ended on September 24th, and the administration issued a new travel ban. It did a lot of things, but to put it as simply as possible, it basically dropped Sudan from the list, and it added Chad and North Korea and select officials from Venezuela. And so that is now a more permanent ban. Um, the administration says it's reviewed the security measures from those countries, and those are countries which require further restrictions on entry into the United States. So we wrote so about, been, yeah, we wrote about um, late, late at night on Sunday, wrote about the new ban. And my first thought was, what is that going to do to this Supreme Court case that's pending over travel ban 2.0? So, what so that's a great question. Sure. And that's a great question. And so what the court has done immediately is two things. First, it's pulled the travel ban case from the oral argument calendar. So it was set for October 10th. It's now suspended indefinitely. And second, it's asked the parties to brief the question of what should happen. Is the case now moot? Both the 90-day um, the suspension piece uh, for which the administration has issued the new order and the refugee piece for which the uh, administration has not issued a new order, but which expires on October 23rd and action from the administration is expected soon. So if they do decide that the case is now moot, what does that mean exactly? What will, will the lower court ruling stand? What will happen? So the court basically has three options now uh, once it gets the briefing and has a chance to look at the mootness question. First, it could reinstate the case for oral argument, presumably in either the November or December sittings. Second, it could just dismiss the case as moot and leave in place the lower court decisions from the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, which would allow those cases to retain their precedential value. Or it could uh, dismiss and vacate the decisions below, which would basically eliminate those as uh, precedent. And the government has asked the court, if it dismisses as moot, to vacate the decisions below. The challengers and a number of Namiki will, of course, uh, ask the court if it's going to dismiss to leave those decisions in place. And so one of those three things is likely to be where the court heads over the next couple of weeks. Just for the sake of uh, making sure we're talking uh, about these cases in the most holistic way possible, you've walked us through some of the procedural uh, you know, developments that have come up. But let's talk for a second. Let's let's anticipate that it does not get declared moot and it must proceed forward on the merits. Let's get back to sort of the matter at hand here and talk about what each side is going to be arguing here um, as the case uh, goes before the justices. 
Sure. So the plaintiffs have two main arguments. Uh, the first is an establishment clause argument, which is the argument that the Fourth Circuit accepted. And that's basically the argument that the travel ban was put in place to discriminate against Muslims. Mm -hmm. And the argument draws its power from statements made mostly by candidate Trump um, and things uh, on the order of Islam hates us. We need a shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. The fact that he asked Mayor Giuliani to head a commission looking at the, quote, Muslim ban. Yeah, it was all really incendiary, that stuff. So. Indeed. And the plaintiffs are pointing to those kind of statements to say this shows a discriminatory intent that that the, the president was trying to discriminate against Muslims. The second set of arguments are statutory arguments, and those are the ones that the Ninth Circuit accepted. And they focus on the power of the president to restrict entry uh, to the United States of aliens when he, when he believes it would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And what the court held was that the president had insufficiently articulated why this would be detrimental to the United States. And the plaintiffs also invoke another statutory provision that prevents discrimination against nationals, certain nationals in the issuance of immigrant visas, and said that this travel ban is discriminatory against certain nationalities in violation of that statutory provision. And as I said, that's, those are arguments that the Ninth Circuit accepted. So, Ian, that's, that's really what the, what the plaintiffs will argue before the justices. How does the government defend, defend this ban? What do they say to the justices? So they say three main things. Uh, the first argument the government makes is that the, the travel ban is largely unreviewable. That basically, it's the president's job to secure the borders, that Congress has augmented his constitutional powers as commander-in-chief by giving him broad statutory authority to regulate entry into the United States, and then also that courts are particularly ill-equipped to judge the security risks and make uh, vetting assessments and shouldn't be second-guessing the president here. So that's a broad non-reviewability kind of argument. With respect to the Establishment Clause, the government says courts shouldn't be looking behind facially legitimate and bona fide justifications. That's kind of the legal jargon for saying when we, when we have a ban that's not religion specific, that doesn't single out Muslims by name, you shouldn't look behind that. Right. Um, and, uh, and certainly, and then the government makes a third argument, which is that even if you were to look behind it in some cases, you shouldn't be doing that to look at statements by candidates, that there's something of of uh, constitutional significance to taking the oath of office and that we should not be opening up the president's former statements as a candidate or even as a businessman before that to look for bad intent. Right. And then the third argument on the statutory question is essentially that the statutory power given to the president is extraordinarily broad. It's uh, to, to restrict entry uh, whenever he may deem it appropriate, when it would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And in the face of such a broad uh, grant of power to the president, the court should be very wary about overturning it and should be particularly wary about overturning it for lack of evidence when the point, the government would say, of the travel ban was precisely to give the government time to collect evidence so that it could justify its restrictions. And so that's really where the core of the debate would be in a travel ban two argument. So one last question about travel ban before we move on to our other exciting cases. Um, does the inclusion of some non-Muslim majority countries in travel ban 3.0, will that have any impact if we do get to merits arguments on the 2.0 travel ban? 
So it certainly will be the subject of the debate. The government will argue that, of course, it does. It shows that this was never about banning Muslims, that it was about banning countries that had insufficient vetting procedures and couldn't um, assure the identity. On the other hand, plaintiffs will say, look, this was just a further screen to cover up a Muslim bias by including a couple of, uh, including North Korea and some folks from Venezuela as attempt to mask Muslim bias. And that will be very much at the core, I think, of the arguments on travel ban three. Now, Lord knows we could each of these cases we're going to talk about could very well merit their own segment. Um, but we do we, we do want to uh, cast as wide a net as possible here with you. And I wanted to talk about one um, that's drawn my interest and the interest of a lot of people around the country. And that is, of course, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is a case that involves questions of LGBTQ discrimination and religious expression, um, and it's a, it's gotten a lot of headlines. But just as a as a something of a quick refresher, can you unpack um, the facts of the case at issue here and the legal questions that the court is going to be presented with? Sure. So the the facts are pretty straightforward. There are two uh, residents of Colorado, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, wanted to get married. They were going to get married in Massachusetts and have a reception in Denver. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they went into a cake shop to get a custom wedding cake for their wedding. And they were informed by Masterpiece Cake Shop and Mr. Phillips, who Jack Phillips, who was the uh, head lead proprietor of the cake shop, that uh, he wouldn't design custom wedding cakes for a same-sex wedding. He was a religious man and said that uh, he wouldn't do custom cakes that promoted things that were against his religious ideals and same-sex marriage was in that category. So uh, the, the couple, after getting married and having a reception with a different cake in Denver, filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and the Colorado Civil Rights Commission found that Masterpiece Cake Shop and Mr. Phillips had discriminated mm -hmm. on the basis of sexual orientation. And this was on the basis of a public accommodations law, which are throughout the country. And they generally prohibit discrimination on the basis of certain characteristics by businesses that are open to the public. And uh, the sexual orientation is included in the Colorado public accommodation statute. That decision was affirmed by the Colorado appellate courts. And then the Supreme Court, after a very extensive delay. Um, yeah, I know that was the big, uh, everyone, everyone was watching the, uh, everyone's watching the doc to see if this would get picked up. Yeah, I remember. Exactly. It was relisted like 16 times. And I think <laughs> the suspicion was they were either waiting for a fifth justice or right. maybe somebody was writing a dissent from denial of cert. But mm -hmm. in any event, they have now taken the case. Okay. One of the sort of lasting legacies of the Roberts court has been this sort of steadily warming up to, uh, you know, improving the state of gay rights in this country. And it all, of course, came to a head with the 2015 gay marriage ruling. But Along that same time, we've also seen it is a conservative-controlled court, after all, and we've seen them take a pretty firm line against sort of government incursion onto religious expression, uh, which we saw last term with the Trinity Lutheran case. Now those two, you know, axioms are in opposition here, and I'm curious to see, you know, how you think those dynamics are going to collide once it gets to argument time. Well, so you're exactly right. These religion cases have been proliferating. It's, it's not just Trinity Lutheran, of course, but Hobby Lobby. Right, which yeah, was, of course. You know, for profit mm -hmm. rights, and then the contraception cases. And so these cases are very hard for the court. I think the court finds them very divisive. Um, I remember the first case I did in the SG's office was the, the prayer before town meetings case. And Justice Kagan said from the bench that she, she finds these cases very hard because no matter what the court does, 
people think they're anti-religion and, and, and get angry at the court. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's interesting here is that the case, although coming up in exactly the context you described as a religion case, is actually being argued as a free speech case. And in fact, Hmm. um, the Solicitor General's brief supporting Masterpiece Cake Shop doesn't argue the Establishment Clause or or religious freedom at all. It argues more as a a speech case and arguing that cake decorating is creative expression, that what you really have here from Colorado is compelled speech or compelled participation in an expressive, uh, expressive event. And so they're really drawing on cases, not so much in the religion area, but on, for example, the Hurley case involving the exclusion of LGBT groups from uh, Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade, where the court said that the private parade organizer could do that mm-hmm. because of a religious objection to, to those people marching in and participating in the parade. And so those are the cases that are actually at the center of this dispute. And then, of course, plaintiffs are saying, well, this isn't speech at all. This is conduct. This is discrimination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once you go down this path, if you start to say, well, this kind of discrimination is really speech, there's no easy end. And, you know, you really are opening up a whole range of discrimination in the business area, which public accommodation statutes have been sort of designed to prevent. Do you think that's that's an interesting and that's a that's a fine point you made in terms of the solicitor general brief framing it as a speech issue, even though Mr. Phillips, the cake shop owner did sort of expressly say it was against his religion to provide services for a gay wedding. Do you think that the government choosing that path as framing it more of as, as a speech issue is what do you think is like the legal strategy that underpins that? Sure. And and to be clear, although the plaintiffs do make the religion argument, their lead argument is also the speech argument. And the reason for that is somewhat doctrinal. There is, um, as a result of a case from many decades ago that Justice Scalia wrote, the Smith case, that makes a a neutral religious rule subject only to rational basis challenges, easily survive, as long as it's generally applicable. And the public accommodation laws are usually thought of as generally applicable laws. And so the plaintiffs do make the argument that it's not generally applicable. And so the court certainly could go down that path. But it is interesting, I think, that both the the Solicitor General's office and the plaintiffs in their lead argument have focused on the speech arguments. There's no doubt, though, that everybody is aware of the exact clash that you flagged. In Mm -hmm. fact, in the oral argument in Obergefell, Justice Alito asked the Solicitor General, well, if we go down this path of same-sex marriage, are you saying that, for example, you could deny tax-exempt status to a religious institution that didn't Mm -hmm. recognize such marriages the way we can for a religious institution that, for example, didn't allow interracial dating. And so these questions are very much at the forefront of the court's mind. And what's very interesting is that the first case to really tee them up is actually coming up as a speech case. And so it'll be interesting to see at oral argument how much the religious aspect comes up and how much the speech aspect really is the focus of the discussion. Ian, the last case that we wanted to get here today to was Gil v. Whitford, which is dealing with partisan gerrymandering, the process of, of, of redrawing sure. congressional districts to give a particular party better odds. Um, you know, this, this, this practice has been around for, for centuries, uh, but this case, which challenges uh, a, a voter redistricting plan in the state of Wisconsin, sort of sets the stage for a ruling that could impose constitutional limits on on partisan gerrymandering. So the the you know racial gerrymandering has been repeatedly struck down by the courts but they've seemingly tolerated the the practice of of partisan gerrymandering. Why has the court been 
somewhat unwilling to to delve into this realm and and what's the argument from from this case that that here's the place where you could do it so i think the main difference the court has seen is that there are at least several justices on the court have seen is that it's not permissible to segregate voters by race and so that that's unlawful and it's relatively rare and therefore it's permissible for the court to kind of seek it out and and try to try to prevent it um, mm-hmm. and to remedy that. For politics, the question is really different. Everybody acknowledges that politics is always part of redistricting. As you said, not only has gerrymandering been around for centuries, but certainly politics has been a core part of redistricting from the very beginning. And, and, uh, and so the real question there isn't should we allow it, it's how do we know when too much when it's gone too far. Um, right. and, and so that is something that the justices or many justices have been wary of taking on, that the question about when something has gone too far is not a question for the court. And it's very interesting. The last time this was up before the court in the Veith case from 2004, all of the justices, including the justices who didn't want this this to go forward, uh, didn't want these to be justiciable or reviewable, um, acknowledged that excessive partisanship violated the Constitution. Their position was simply that that is something that courts just are not well equipped to police and mm-hmm. determining how far is too far is not something courts can do. But then you ask the question, why might it be different this time? I really do think that it comes down to a sense, uh, two things. One, a sense that the system is really broken. Um, Part of that is the increase in technology, that uh, map makers are better and better at at finding sympathetic voters and making sure they're in districts. I look Um, forward to the amicus brief from the Cartographers Association on this. I'm certain that that's there, yes. The social scientists love this case in part because they get to see all of their publications, not only cited by the parties, but cited in the justices' briefs, and perhaps even adopted as a positive <laughs> test. Um, but, I didn't mean to get you, know, you off on a rant there, yeah. No, no, I think it's all, uh, I'm very supportive of political science. <laughs> yeah. um, but what's happened is there's been a, you know, a real polarization of the electorate, that there's been a perception of a loss of faith in the system, and breaking up of communities. And, uh, you know, I think there is a increasing sense that now is, if we ever are going to do it, now is the time to try. And then the other thing that's happened is, I think, the, the, actually the thing we were just talking about jokingly, which is that political scientists have been putting a lot of, of time and effort into developing methodologies to try to measure partisanship. And the question will be, in some ways, whether the court is comfortable enough that those provide reliable and uh, predictable measures of partisanship such that a court can apply it. And it's not each judge or justice saying to his or herself, well, this is too political, this is too partisan, but that other district, although partisan, is not too political. And so I do think the social science journals will be uh, at the very forefront of the discussion and the argument before the court. Right. So we've seen this this case in the headlines. There was there was an issue with Republican lawmakers weighing in with the court a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg said that that it's perhaps the most important case of the term. Um, what do you see as the as the potential impact of this case? We got to it a little bit with with our you know what we've been talking about, but what's the you know what's the 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 potential um, uh, ramifications of this case? Right, I do think that it goes very much to what people are 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 sensing is a part of the breakdown in and polarization of the political system. You have a situation where 
in the House, um, the most liberal, or and in the Senate as well, I think, the most liberal Republican is to the right of the most conservative Democrat. And I think some people are chalking that up in part to the kinds of political gerrymandering um, that we've seen. And I think it's gone across parties. Um, the Maryland plan has been challenged as a Democratic gerrymander, and, and there are certainly a number of plans challenging Republican gerrymanders. And so mm-hmm. uh, there is a sense that it's time to do something and essentially to try to, to try to take back the system a little bit to encourage compromise, to encourage getting legislators to to work together and get things done in a way that perhaps a gerrymandered district doesn't encourage. And so if that kind of change were able to come about, um, I think it really could be fundamental for the democracy. So I feel smarter having had this conversation already, but I know we've basically just scratch the surface of what's going to be a really exciting term. Um, can you just leave us with a few more quick hits of big cases that the listeners should be paying attention to? Sure. And uh, let me give you two that they've granted and two that may be granted later. So on the two that are granted, there's a very interesting case involving cell phone towers and the government's ability to get from cell phone operators where your cell phone has been, essentially. And and, um, it would give the government the authority to track uh, for months and months where you have been by looking to see where your cell phone is. And can't so, see how that would be relevant today at all. Exactly, I, I, think, exactly. I think I might disagree with you on the uh, relevance of that one. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, and then uh, there's a gambling case, um, everybody's favorite subject, I think, and favorite pastime <laughs> maybe, and uh, a question about whether New Jersey can have sports gambling in its uh, casinos and, and in its um, racetracks. Uh, and that case will be up before the court. And I think uh, the industry and the sports leagues are following that one um, Ian, very closely. Ian, do you care to handicap that one for us? <laughs> <laughs> Not being in a state where gambling is legalized, I'll just I'll pass on okay. that. Um, and then two cases that are probably uh, that may well come up. I mean, one is Title VII and whether it covers sexual orientation and or transgender. There is a cert petition up on the sexual orientation question, and, and the lower court, the courts of appeals have been uh, addressing that, and so the court may well jump into that. And then the last case is the question of mandatory dues for public sector uh, employees in in unions. Uh, it's a case that the court has taken before and deadlocked 4-4. And now that mm. Justice Gorsuch is on the court, I would expect that case to uh, to come back before the court and again be be quite contentious. So it's a it's a blockbuster term already, and then there are several other cases on the horizon. Wow, those are great. The geek in me is very excited now. So thanks a lot for being with us, Ian, to walk us through all of these really exciting cases. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. That's going to do it for us today. Guys, this was a great interview. I feel like I'm ready for the new term now. I feel smarter. Absolutely. Thanks for being with me, Bill. Thanks, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd like to thank the producers who worked on today's show, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our special guest, Ian Gershengorn. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. All of the cases Ian brought to us today, we've covered extensively at Law360, and we're going to keep track of them as the term continues. Please go to our website, law360.com, for more information. If you like the show, take a second to leave us a review on iTunes. And thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Hey, guys, it's Alex. Thanks again for listening to the show. 
Um, you know, one of the most common complaints about the justice system is that it's too slow. It takes too long to deliver results. But that was not the case within the context of us recording this episode, though. Uh, during the interview, you heard Ian Gershengorn say that he would be watching very closely to see if the court granted cert in a case called Mark Janus v. American Federation, which will examine the constitutionality of public sector union fees. Um, shortly after our interview concluded, uh, the court did grant cert in that case. So we just wanted to sort of update you on the most current status of that proceeding and also uh, commend Ian Gershengorn for his keen foresight. So thanks very much and uh, we'll see you again next week.